Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. Our guest today is Dr. Ben White. He is a neuroradiologist at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas and associate program director of the radiology residency. He also has a website, benwhite.com, where he talks about medicine, finance, and being a better human. This episode was a collaboration with the Medical Business Association and the Student Advocate Association at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. We mainly spoke about finances after residency, but we also explored his top list of things to do after the match, common questions from recently graduated residents, and what to do to secure your financial future. We also had the fun experience to be able to field a few questions from club members. Hope you enjoy. So yeah, with that, uh, welcome to the show. Dr. White, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Yeah, to start, we would love to hear a little bit about your life, where you're at now, your career, um, especially how you got involved in the world of personal finance. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So clinically, I am a neuroradiologist. I work at the Baylor University Medical Center in downtown Dallas, where I'm associate PD of the radiology residency. So that's what I do in medicine. I've been there for almost three years. And then in terms of personal finance and writing, basically the long story short is that in 2009, I started writing for a medical audience about medical education and test prep and whatnot. And back then it was basically an intellectual desert of the internet. You would Google things and find like these ridiculous gunner posts on student.org about how to prepare. And I was like, these are not real people. None of these answers feel real to me. And so my goal was always to go through it myself and try to give people a, a real perspective from like an average, a normal human approach to medical school and test prep. And so, you know, obviously I got older, I went to fourth year, started writing about fourth year financial planning because you had to deal with interview costs and travel and all these issues with step two and step two CS and of course student loans. And so Again, back then, student loans were not discussed a lot. This is before a lot of the more modern payment plans were available. And so I would look up how to try to handle it myself, and there was just nothing good out there. And so I started writing about it myself. And you know, lo and behold, years and years later, it's been like a decade, and I've been writing about this stuff for a very long time. And I probably know more than <laughs> a lot of people because it was a passion of mine, and it ended up becoming something that's really I feel very passionately about because it is a really important issue that gets a a kind of short shrift on a lot of the internet and and book-based financial planning kind of stuff. Well, there's not very many people that can say they're passionate about student loans. So it's painful, right? They're terrible and everyone hates them and I hate them. Um, And it's funny because when I started writing about it again, like you Google stuff and it'd be like crickets, there'd be just nothing there. And then of course around 2015, um, the private refinancing companies got into the game. And so it became possible to start making money with these like these student loan uh, refinance referrals. And so now there's lots of writing about student loans because people are constantly trying to funnel people towards refinancing because it's a really lucrative uh, niche in online writing. And so now there's tons of writing, but a lot of it's not very good. <laughs> and a lot of it's like very superficial. And most of it is not geared towards doctors who have a very complex situation between high debt, future high income, 
temporary low income during residency, the possibility of loan forgiveness for public conservative loan forgiveness, you know, all these things kind of come together and make it way more complicated than it should be. And so like the typical, you know, blog post about something is just insufficient to really get a good handle on it. And that's why I ended up writing a book about it and giving it away is because people would ask these questions to me on email or I'd see it on Facebook groups and it'd be like, this is not enough. And people get these answers from people on the internet. Cause like the internet people are, are wonderful at giving opinions. Yeah. You'd be like, that's wrong. That's wrong too. No, that's incorrect. Like it was very painful for me to see. I was like, I need to do something to hopefully, you know, be a small bulwark against misinformation. So anyway, passion may, be like, may not be the right word, but it is a word. Do you have any insight onto why maybe there wasn't a lot of information around 20, 30 years ago? Like, why has it become so much more of a thing that people worry about? So several reasons. One reason is that uh, it's gotten to be a bigger problem, right? So until the 80s, for example, you couldn't even borrow money. Like, I mean, parents borrow money for kids for college, right? The parent plus loan. That didn't exist until the 80s. So people couldn't even do that. And so what happened was when the federal government made it more possible to borrow money for school, both for students, for parents, tuition costs rose to kind of take advantage of that, unfortunately, right? And that's been part of why tuition has outpaced inflation by an incredible margin, right? So if you were to track, you know, consumer spending and consumer price indexes, you know, healthcare is bad, right? Well, tuition's worse. College and, and grad school have gone up far faster than any other category, including cars, healthcare, houses, and everything. And so part of it, that's a huge problem now where it didn't used to be. So like you're attending, some of them who are, you know, 20 years out borrowed like, you know, 40 grand at 1%, right? Well, that's not what you get to have, right? A completely different world. So that's one part of it. Second part of it is, you know, even just 15 years ago, we had this new possibility of public service loan forgiveness. And so now it's not about just paying off your loans. Now it's, well, how should I pay off my loan? Should I pay it off myself? Should I achieve loan forgiveness? If I want to do either one of those things, then how do I set myself up to maximize that choice? And that's not trivial, especially if you consider that, you know, the payment plans have gotten more complicated. So again, back in... 15 years ago, everyone was using kind of the same plan. So it was pretty much nothing good. They're all kind of generic. Uh, they would basically pay off your loan in you know, 10 years or 20 years, 25 years, whatever. Now we have these income-based payment plans. We used to have IBR only. Then we have IBR and pay as you earn. Then we added in repay. And then we have an interest subsidy and an interest cap. And so it became, people were trying to do the right thing, right? Congress is trying to make it easier to pay off your loans because people are drowning in debt and are unable to service them, right? So the default rate of student loans has gone way up. It's over 10%. So people are not able to pay these off. And so in order to deal with that, we've had this explosion of programs to help people pay them off and help them achieve loan forgiveness and all this great stuff. But each time they do this, it gets more complicated, not less. Um, and there's been no ability to kind of rein in the complexity. It's just gotten more complex over time. So even though it's gotten better overall, I mean, the situation is better now than it was 10 years ago. It's more convoluted. And so that's partially why it wasn't discussed. It was boring and no one made any money on it. And now it's complex. People make lots of money on it. So yeah. that's basically it. One thing that you've done is, so you've written a book about student loans. It's probably like the book about medical student loans. And that's what it's called, right? It's called Medical Student Loans, A Comprehensive Guide. Okay. Yeah. So that's always nice when the title's exactly what you should search on Google. No secrets. Um, but where can people go? Because like, it's, it's complicated, right? And I think this book is a great resource for people graduating because... Nobody wants to talk for an hour about repay and pay and, and these things, oh, right? It's so because boring. it's dense. Yeah, it's but but we need this resource. So where can people go to find your book? 
So the book is available for free. So if you go to benwhite.com slash student loans, all one word, you can find it there. The links are on the main page as well. And basically uh, you can buy it on Amazon or, or iTunes. You, you can buy a print copy online if you want to be able to have a physical copy, but the full text is available online. So you can literally just click on the links if you want to and just read the whole text. It's about 45,000 words. It'll take you a few hours. I mean, it's, not, it's a real book. Um, and basically I wrote it with the fourth year in mind. So I wrote it to be a personal finance book for graduating students. So it's not just student loans, it's also about, you know, how does interest work? It touches on retirement accounts and taxes and all these things that at a level that is relevant to the resident who's trying to figure it out for the purposes of maximizing how they handle loans and how they handle their kind of budgeting. So it's a great, you know, personal finance primer, but has a big focus on student loans because it's, that's the one topic that no one else covers very well. Most places, even the books for a doctor is by people who I like, it's like one chapter. And the, and it's like the default way to do this, you know, will work. It is a, a plan, but it, it may not be the right plan for a lot of people because there is nuance. And so I do recommend people read the book. It's, you know, totally free. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not priceless because I really do think it's really important for people to do their due diligence when it comes to this stuff. Um, if you hire a financial planner, most of them don't know what they're talking about. I actually just got an email today from somebody who was given bad advice by a financial planner because they don't understand how this stuff works. And a lot of these people um, have you know, the biases and other issues when it comes to how they give advice. So it really is important that even if you hire some, have a family friend or someone you're talking to, or you're getting advice from friends or professionals that you need to know enough about the topic to know if what you're hearing makes sense. If it's plausible, if it's reasonable, you should be able to pick out the red flags, like, Hmm, wait a minute. It doesn't sound quite right. And then you can go back and look at it more. Cause if you don't know anything, then you're going to end up Total regret later on in many cases. You're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had done this. I get emails like that every day being like, I wish I found this book before. So you found it now. So <laughs> go read it. You mentioned some red flags. Do you have um, a few examples or do you have some general principles um, that you kind of guide when you're listening to people's advice? Yeah. So a couple of things. One is that if someone is giving you free advice, it's never free advice, right? So if, it, if it's a steak dinner or whatever, it's all never free. So even if they're not charging you right now, the goal is to get you in a plan where they can charge you later on, either by selling you insurance products or by managing your assets when you have a retirement account. And so it's kind of worth what you pay for it. Because people are using this free advice as a marketing gimmick to get a relationship with you. And so what a lot of these people will do is recommend things like, you shouldn't pay off your loans because you should be doing other things instead that might give them money, right? It's like, oh, you should definitely earn this product because I make money from that. That's more important than your student loans. Or you should definitely, uh, you know, invest in this account like an IRA because that's better to be in the market than it is to pay off your student loans because it's always better to, you know, and they, they'll give you factoids that might not be incorrect, but may not be the right choice for you. And so the bottom line is that people should definitely have a student loan plan and it should be based on, uh, a holistic view of their own life, their own goals and what their plans are. And most people are not going to be able to give you that advice to you for free because their time is valuable. And so if they're able to do that. It's probably not going to be good advice. So investing my student loans in Dogecoin is not a good idea is what you're saying. You know, one of my residents is doing that right now. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a great idea. Um, but you know, it's funny. I actually had a friend in med school who took out his student loans, invested all of his money in student loans because his family was helping him pay for it, and then made a bunch of money in the market and has no debt. Congratulations, right? That's great. That's investing on margin, right? When it works, it works. When it doesn't, it doesn't. It's a risky move. <laughs> um, my perspective is that I think personal finance should be personal, 
but I also think it should be boring. So I think most people's plans should be really, really boring. And if it's really boring, it'll probably work out well. Um, you know, obviously, you know, do I wish I invested in Bitcoin back to 20 years ago? Sure. Like I almost mined coins on PlayStation 3 back in the day. You could, you could like mine coins on your PS3 back in like 2008. Like it was a thing. Like, oops, right? I could have, I could retire right now. But that's not, that kind of hindsight is not very helpful. Uh, so it's probably better to have a, a real plan that usually involves an income-based repayment plan. Something in that spectrum is probably a better plan than Doge. But, you know, hey, Elon's tweeting about a lot, so <laughs> could do worse. So, Dr. White, you've recently written an article on your website, and it's about a couple steps that each new graduate should take before they before they start residency. And I wanted to touch on a couple of those points because I thought they were good. Um, let's see. So it says, one of the first things that you encourage students to do is to learn about personal finance. And now, as you mentioned, sometimes personal finance, your personal finance plan should be boring, right? And so how do people learn about personal finance? What resources do you recommend for them to dip their feet in the water, become familiar with the term terminology so that they can have these conversations with financial advisors and so that they understand their own loans. Where do you recommend they go to, to learn this sort of thing? There are a lot of sources online that are, that are good. Like the Bogu Heads Forum is really good, but I feel like a lot of those types of things get kind of in the weeds and are kind of hard to follow when you're first starting out. I think it's good to find a good book. I think if you're looking for something really quick, there's a book by William Bernstein called If You Can. It's free. You can download it online. It's really, really quick. Read it in a day, in like a couple hours. It's a great little book about kind of how money works in the, in the broad set, you know, and how basic retirement stuff works. That's great. Looking for something a little more tailored to doctors, you know, the White Coat Investor book is great. You know, he's a, Jim's a great guy. My book definitely does cover, I think, like the, the basics, the, the crucial stuff. And so I think it's a reasonable way to do it, too. Um, those three things, I think, are all good books. And I think it, when you're thinking about personal finance, you really have to figure out basically insurance products, retirement accounts, and student loans. Those are kind of the big three. If you have a plan for all three of those things, you're kind of done. And mostly the retirement stuff is really easy at the resident level because you're really talking about either a Roth IRA or your employer account. You can ignore all this about taxable accounts and tax loss harvesting and all this crazy stuff. It's totally relevant to you for years. Like it's completely irrelevant. So forget it even exists. Just talk about the most basic stuff. And it probably does not involve cryptocurrency or um, not tokens or anything like that. It's probably not going to be part of your retirement plan, at least at this stage of your life. Yeah, I like that. And I like that you keep bringing up about the, like, not making it too complicated. Because, I mean, it's the same thing about patient care. Really, almost anything in your life, the more complicated it gets, that's not a good thing most of the time. There's just more places you can mess up or make mistakes like that. Correct. Yeah, complexity is not rewarded. So, it's, it's easy, I think, when you talk to your financial planner, for example, a guy was talking to me the other day, and he recommended, you know, this 11 fund plan with all these things. And, like, this is how well it would have done. And it's like, it's not anyone can go in and find a collection of plans that would have performed really, really well over the past decade and say, this is a great plan for you. But going forward, prospectively, it's BS. The data shows it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> Essentially, just invest in these you know, index funds that are low cost and low fee. And the fact that they're low, you know, no cost, no fee is basically going to get you all the way you need for a good retirement plan. So you, know, you can pick a target date fund that's basically you know, planned for you by Vanguard or Fidelity or whatever and call it a day and never look at it ever again and be outperforming the vast majority of investors, which is, you know, depressing and crazy to think about, but that's just a fact. Just, you know, the data shows that. So you talked um, a little bit about uh, student loan consolidation. Can you just kind of talk about the, um, 
like, why would you even consider doing that? And then if you do decide to do that, what are the next steps? Sure. So it's important to remember that student loan consolidation is a federal program as opposed to student loan refinancing, which is a private thing. So when you uh, consolidate your loans with the federal government, what you're basically doing is trading in all the loans you have because you get a loan every semester. So if you've been in med school four years, you have basically eight loans plus what you have in college, sometimes even additional extra loans that you can get on the side. So it gets all those loans and then puts it into one loan. So first off, it's just easier to look at, easier to track. So that's one loan. When you do that, you also waive the six-month grace period, or you can waive that grace period. So instead of entering repayment in November, you can enter repayment basically in July. And what that does, it gets more of those months when you're a resident to count towards loan forgiveness. And so most average students who are uh, going to borrow, you know, kind of six-figure debt should consider the possibility that they might work in a qualifying job that would qualify for loan forgiveness. And so the way loan forgiveness works is that you make 10 years of payments um, over the course of time. And when, after you do that, you get your loans forgiven tax-free. It's a great, great program, complicated, but great. And so the best bang for your buck is if the most time that you are a resident where you have a low salary is if you're making payments. And so you want to have as many payments as a low-paying, low-earning resident as possible. And so you don't want that six-month grace period. That's just going to hurt you. You want to start as soon as possible. And so the basically benefits are, those are the two main benefits, is, is the grace period, making things simple. There's some extra benefits in terms of maximizing the student loan interest deduction and some smaller things like that that are probably not worth getting into. There's a blog post about it. It's all in the book. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It doesn't really hurt you in any meaningful way. Every once in a while, somebody who has very low debt and has very different interest rates, like they have some plus loans that are you know at 8% and some other loans at 7 you can argue that they should keep them separate so they can try to focus on the high, you know, high interest loan debt first. But for the vast majority of residents, they're going to be better off just consolidating, picking their servicer, and kind of optimizing themselves for the possibility of public, loan for, public service loan forgiveness because most of their residencies will qualify automatically. And so even if you were to maximize your payments later on and have kind of a, a high payments as an attending, even after a three-year residency, you're talking, you know, tens of thousands of dollars forgiven for the average medical student. It can be a, a huge boon. And if you're talking about people with those very big, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars debts, you're talking about savings of six figures sometimes just because you have made sure to be on a plan that qualifies during residency. So you only want to optimize that. So does this matter as much if you are planning on paying off your loans yourself and not going for public service loan forgiveness? It matters much less. Yeah. So in that, in that case, if you're, if you're confident, like hundred percent confident, you don't need it. It's not really a huge deal to enter repayment later. The main difference is that uh, one example is that when you consolidate you, your loan uh, interest capitalizes, right? So when you're in school, you've unsubsidized loans, which means that they're accruing interest from the day you take them out. So you have a combination of principal, which is a loan itself, plus the interest that's accrued on that principal. And so what happens is when you enter repayment, that all capitalizes and becomes a new loan with new principal that is a bigger amount. And that bigger amount, therefore, grows at a faster rate now because it's the accrues on that bigger amount. And so when you, when you consolidate, you make that trigger in July, let's say, instead of you know, six months later when there's even more interest accruing before you capitalize. So from that perspective, you're going to be a little bit worse off just because, again, that, that absolute loan amount in the principal will be a little bit higher earlier on. 
So there is that issue. The other benefit is that if you choose repay, for example, a lot of residents will have what they call an unpaid interest subsidy, which means that when you are in repay and you make a student loan payment that's calculated on your income, if it doesn't cover the full amount of interest accruing on your loan, the federal government will waive half the amount you didn't pay, right? So this is lots of math. But so let's say your, your loan accrued you know, $1,000 of interest in a month and your payment was $500, then you didn't pay $500, then 250 is waived. Essentially, this lowers your effective interest rate. And so that kicks in the minute you start making payments, and through $0 payments. And so if you enter repay, again, in July instead of in November, those are more months of that unpaid interest subsidy helping you out and making your loan grow less fast. So, you know, that's the other benefit. So it's really, again, mostly good things. Not a huge deal if you don't do it. You know, it's not, no one's, you know, life is going to be ruined if they don't do this. But it's just, again, the kind of thing where it takes a few years to do it, but there's lots of benefits. So, you know, why not do it? Gotcha. So, so for the average person, regardless if you're going for public loan, ser- public service loan forgiveness, or you plan on paying it off yourself, or you're just unsure, most people would want to consolidate their loans um, as soon as they graduate. Is it as soon as you graduate, or as soon as you match, or when can you do that? Is- so when you graduate, so your school, your loans have to be what's called in uh, graduation status. So if you're still in school, you have an in-school deferment that you cannot waive on those loans. And so you have to wait till you're graduated. There's a website called the NSLDS, which is the National Student Loan Database. And you can look yourself up on that and see what the status of your loans is. And so when that changes is when you can file for consolidation. Gotcha. And usually it's a couple of weeks after you graduate. It takes them a couple of days, a little bit to, to actually update it. Gotcha. So, so for most people, you wait until you're graduated, then you consolidate. And then depending on what you want to do, you, you pretty much just make those minimum payments during residency. And then after residency, you decide, okay, am I going to stay on with a nonprofit and give my 10 years and have my loans forgiven? Or am I going to go work in a private practice and just pay off these loans? And if that's your option, is that when you decide to refinance your public loans and make them private? Or do you decide to refinance sooner? That's a common scenario. So it's usually when you are certain at that point that you don't, are not going to qualify for PSLF. Um, and even that is, you know, most people who write about this would argue, yes, at that point, the minute you take that job, sign for your job, you should, you should refinance your loans because you get better rates. The one caveat to that that I think people never talk about is that people change their jobs a lot. So a lot of people don't like their first job. Especially, it's very common for doctors to change their first job after a year or two. And so I have met plenty of people who have taken a job that did not qualify, refinanced their loans, hated that job, taken a new job. That job did qualify, but it's a one-way street. Once you refinance, you're done. You can never go back to federal loans again. And so, you know, people often say you shouldn't, you know, let's say buy a house when you first get take a new job, right? Because, you know, why set up roots and all the costs associated with that if you don't know you want to stay there? That argument would also apply to student loans. You know, yes, you're going to lose some money if you wait to pull a trigger on a refi that might save you money. But at the same time, you know, if you have a really big, big loan, like, you know, 400 grand, something like that, I personally would make sure that you like that job before you refinance. Because if you end up going back to a job that does qualify, you're going to be hitting yourself that you've wasted, you know, a six-figure forgiveness boon, essentially, by doing that. So I think it's really important to make sure that you are certain because it is a one-way street. You cannot undo it. You can always refinance to a lower rate if you had a better deal, but you can never go back to federal program once you leave it. So it's really important to make sure that you don't want it. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I know I don't want it. And then they sometimes they work at the VA, right? Sometimes they go work at the nonprofit. Sometimes they work for you know a group in town and they didn't think it was an account, but guess what? It counts because they are contracted with the nonprofit and they get reorganized or corporatized and they're, suddenly their practice group becomes a part of some bigger entity that is in fact a nonprofit. It just depends, right? 
hard to plan for in that way. So, you know, if you owe five figures, you know, by all means, plan to pay it off yourself, whatever. But when you're talking about people who owe, you know, 200 plus, like I think most people in your school probably do, it's really worth making sure that you know what you want to do. So for example, me, like, you know, I thought I was BPS left for sure because I want to stay in academia. Well, chances, it turns out that I work at a group that's a private practice group as a nonprofit affiliation. So I work at a nonprofit hospital, but the hospital does not pay my bills, right? They don't pay my salary. Um, so I don't actually qualify. I had to pay them off myself. But I don't regret being optimized for that plan because that was a good plan. It didn't work out. And, you know, I borrowed reasonably in medical school. So I'm not, I was not hosed by that decision. You know, there are people out there who borrowed so much money that they're basically obligated them to get loan forgiveness because they can never service their debt themselves. And so for those people, it's really important to make sure you optimize yourself for the program. Other people kind of are going to be able to make a decision either way and be fine. It's more a matter of why leave them on the table, right? So if you're in a situation where you could have gotten to any way, don't throw away the chance by just kind of chasing after, you know, a small refi bonus or some blog post you read online, that kind of stuff like that. I like that concept of leaving as your options open because you never know what's going to happen. And uh, speaking of you never know what's going to happen, you write quite a bit about insurance. Um, Can you kind of talk about the process for disability insurance in particular? Disability insurance is one of the things that people uh, would argue is really important for doctors to have. The real question is, is when do you get it? And the way disability insurance works is that a good plan will insure you for exactly what you do as a doctor. And so if you can't perform those functions, even temporarily, uh, you can basically qualify to get benefits from the company who will pay essentially uh, a benefit based on how much money you earn. And so that is uh, very helpful for kind of life security and feeling comfortable knowing the future is uncertain. And so that's the, the basic insurance. You pay money every month, uh, you get a plan and then you get paid if you get uh, disabled and a good plan will also pay you for partial disability, which means that if you can like, let's say work part-time and you can't work full-time, they'll pay you a partial benefit for your lost salary. So it makes a big difference, right? So um, one thing is really, I think helpful to think about that I think people don't really realize is that, you know, you're never younger and healthier than you are right now in general. And so the issue is that if you become ill or become disabled, it's kind of too late. And it's a problem with insurance, right? Is that you never know if you're going to need it or not. Obviously, odds are you won't need it. If you did, if everyone did, they wouldn't make any money. <laughs> so the fact of the matter is you don't know if you're going to need it or not, but it is, I think, very comforting to know that. And when I think personally as a, as a you know, young attending, I think back about my residency and, you know, my post-cult driving when I was super exhausted, you know, tired driving is worse than drunk driving, basically. And so between the fact that people get their autoimmune diseases and other illnesses in their 20s and 30s, a lot of people will get pregnant and have kids. And that's obviously a high risk for, for female physicians. And just the, the vagaries of, of residency in terms of driving tired and, and needle sticks and whatnot, I think it makes a lot of sense to look into the process relatively early, just so you have more information, right? So I don't think everyone has to buy a policy on day one, but I do think it's really helpful to do the reading about it, figure out kind of what you would need and probably talk to an agent and see how much it would cost just so you know what you're looking at. When you buy disability insurance, you have to buy it through an agent. You can't just go online and say, I want to buy it. You have to basically talk to an agent. They have contracts with various insurance providers. You've talked to an independent agent, basically they can give you quotes from the big six companies that provide disability insurance and they can tell you what it looks like. And basically the amount of cost per month will depend on the benefit. And so a medical student can get a, a plan after match day, essentially. And then a resident can get a plan and attendants can get a plan. And basically what happens is when you buy a plan early on, obviously it's a very small plan, you can buy what's called a future benefit increase rider. Riders are these kind of optional add-ons. And so you can basically buy a plan. You can then 
uh, automatically purchase more insurance later when your income goes up. So the plan can grow with you, but you have to requalify. So if you're healthy now and you buy it, if you become sick later, you can still buy a bigger plan as long as you're still working. So even if you, let's say, develop multiple sclerosis, you could still buy a bigger plan. They can't uninsure you if you're still working. Then if you became even more disabled, they have to keep paying you. And so that's the benefit of doing it early on is that you are young and healthy. So you can kind of lock in that insurability. If you develop any other problems later on, well, tough on the insurance company, you can still get paid. And I think it's very, very helpful, especially since a lot of us do have student loans and whatnot, and they are not currently very easy to discharge. It to be like permanently and completely disabled to get your loans discharged. So just that alone is a, a good reason to get disability insurance, just so you can help service your own debt, your own care. You know, life insurance is important because if people are relying on you, like you have a, a you know, spouse or kids, but if you're dis- even if you're single, if you're disabled, who's going to pay for your life? You know, who's going to pay for the things you can do? And a good doctor policy will pay for you if you can't be a doctor, even if you can do other stuff. So if you're a surgeon and you injure your hand and you can still do other stuff, they still pay you because you can't do surgery, which is what you are. So it's really helpful to have a good plan like that. And a good insurance agent who's independent can give you kind of quotes from all the different companies that do what you do. And the reason to do it early on to get quotes is that one of the factors, in addition to the fact that you're young and healthy, is that the institutions that you're at will often have discounts from these companies. And so you should find out, you know, for example, maybe you got a better discount as a student where you currently are in university, or maybe you get a better discount from the residency institution you're at. You know, for example, like I got a better discount uh, from where I was a resident than I would have from where I'm currently attending. And so that kind of stuff changes. And so there's no way to know except for to ask somebody. It costs you nothing. You just talk to the agent. They get your information. They tell you what it costs. You're like, "Mm, too expensive. Move on. No big deal. But I think it's always knowledge is power. And so that's the reason why it makes sense to to look at it early and educate early, just so you know what it is you're looking at, kind of how much it would cost for you, uh, how much it would make you feel better if you had it, and all that stuff like that. So I've heard that some people or like in residency, you are automatically qualified. Is that true? I I heard a story once about some doctor who tried to get disability insurance while he was in medical school. He had some pre-existing condition, which disqualified him and he regretted it because he could have automatically qualified in residency or something along those lines. Do you know anything about that? Like she just wait until residency it's not that. So it's that when you are an employee, you will often get access to a what's called a group plan. So when you're a resident, for example, you will have disability insurance probably from your residency. It's not going to be a very good plan probably. It's going to be probably low benefit and frequently it's not uh, what you call own occupation. So it may not be quite as narrow in how it defines what it is you do and uh, and whatnot. And it's sometimes harder to qualify for to actually be quote unquote disabled. Most of them don't involve things like partial disability. And so, but you do have that plan. And so when you're an employee, as a resident, it's possible that's the only plan you can get. And those plans don't typically go with you when you leave your job, gotcha. but occasionally they can. And so it's really more the issue is that when you are young and healthy, you can buy an independent plan that can go with you. So the plan I bought when I was a fellow is still my plan. I have a, I have a plan from work too. I have two plans. And so they're kind of their additive. And so if I left my job, my work plan goes away, but I still have my other plan. It'll always be with me, no matter where else I go. And that's the, that's the benefit, is that you have a, a really powerful individualized plan that they can't get rid of no matter what. Otherwise, you can only get these kind of less good employer-based group plans. And some of them are pretty good, um, but a lot of them are not. And typically, the ones you get like as a resident, oftentimes, are not super great because of why would they be, right? Yeah, um, yeah totally. So that's, that's the main issue there. And so, yeah, when you have a disability, they can't say no to you if you're basically part of a group plan, essentially. And so that's, that's the main benefit is that you can always get some disability insurance when you're employed, 
but obviously let's say you leave your job and you didn't qualify and you're not employed anymore. You know, it's kind of, kind of messy. And so it is good to have your own plans. You know, you can always buy a bigger policy for like, let's say life insurance from your employer for the same reason. It's usually pretty cheap. The problem is when you leave that plan goes away. And so you need to have your own plans as well that you can take with you. Gotcha. Um, we also have a question in the chat. Um, it's talking about back to paying student loans. If somebody comes across some money while they're in medical school, is it a good idea to pay off your student loans while you're in medical school? And is that even an option? So it's always an option. You can always make payments on your loans no matter what. Like, um, they're happy for you to do so. Um, the main issue with that is that when you're in school, the amount of interest accruing every day is based on the principal that you borrowed. And so if you pay off a little bit of money, let's say you had a loan of $100,000, and let's say 20 grand of that is currently accrued interest. Well, if you can only pay 10 grand, you're basically only paying off the accrued interest. You can't pay off the principal directly until all the interest has been paid off first. So what tends to happen is that if you have a small amount of money you came into relative to the amount of loans you borrowed, and all you can do is pay off some interest, you haven't changed the natural history of the loan because the principal is unchanged. So it only really makes sense to actually put money toward your loans if you can put enough money in there to actually dent the principal, that main bit of money you borrowed. Because once you've done that, then the loan will actually grow small, slower. Remember, so the interest accrues on the principal amounts, so the actual loan itself. So if you can do that, that's worth it. So let's say, you know, you've ha- you do have like, you know, a six-figure inheritance, you know, by all means, sure, you can do that. The caveat there is obviously, you know, if you are going to be in a situation where you have a long residency and, qual- and qualify for loan forgiveness, you'll probably still pay less with forgiveness than you would paying off in cash. That being said, personal finance is personal. I think folks would be very, very happy not having a student loan debt. So while it might not be the, the best choice mathematically, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made for maximizing your retirement accounts, doing a Roth IRA, all of what, you know, it's all great stuff to do instead. However, uh, I would, I, people often say things like, oh, you should never do that. You should, you know, keep it going as long as possible because you make money in the market. People discount the psychological benefit of being debt-free. I think it is extremely liberating. And there's lots of data actually on residents showing that people who owe more money are more burnt out. They're less happy part of work. So if you could graduate debt-free, even if it might not be the, the very best choice mathematically, I personally think it's a great choice because you were probably going to feel extremely unshackled as a doctor, knowing that you were entering with a clean slate. Because most people feel, I think, very shackled by their debt. One factor, I guess, to bring up right now, um, the, the loans are at 0% right now, I'm pretty sure, right? Johnny, isn't that correct? Do you remember? Until September, yeah. Until September? Okay. So mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't know if, if that was going to end or, or going to go on. I knew it was probably eventually going to end. September 31st is, is the deadline for that, and it's going to stop. And I think the odds of that being extended is basically zero. So unfortunately, I think we're all on the hook for it. And people talking about you know, possibly uh, you know, Biden forgiving some money via executive decision, um, but even if he does do an executive action for that, it's going to be like 10 grand. It's probably going to exclude uh, a lot of people who make more money. So it may may not. Um, but it probably won't work for any attendings. And for most residents with average debt, it's a kind of drop in the bucket, right? It's not going to change your plan either way. So uh, unfortunately, we're all kind of probably going to be on the hook for it and have to use the existing plans. My, uh, my wife's um, dad is a banker, and he told me one time, he was like, you got to learn to take care of your own finances because no one feels sorry for doctors ever. So you know, it's, it's, it's true. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, for example, about PSLF and, you know, trying to cap it or limit it and all these things because people, I think, for, for better or worse, don't love the idea of somebody who's making six figures 
getting forgiveness, even if they don't, even if they actually owe per their income, a lot of money just feels like a very first world problem, very first percent problem. Right. You know? And so I think the program is safe and people shouldn't worry about it, but it is one of those things where no one feels bad for doctors. Right. And there, and there's going to be more and more stories in the news in the next, next few years of people who have borrowed lots of money uh, and paid very little of it off and then gotten forgiveness while earning a very high salary, right? There's going to be a, a story soon of a neurosurgeon who had like nine years of fellowship, right? In, in residency and is going to pay like, you know, let's say 60 grand or 70 grand on their loans and borrowed like, you know, half a million and get it all forgiven while covering a Bentley. It's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. It's going to happen in the news and people are not going to feel bad, right? They're going to be upset. <laughs> we actually had another question um, in the chat. Someone was asking about um, the disability insurance for students who are going to be military doctors versus um, just a civilian doctor. Do you have any um, insight into that? I actually don't have any insight into that. I know the military tends to have very good benefits, but I don't know if those last forever after you leave the military or if you vest into them, if you've been there for long enough. I know for a lot of things like retirement accounts, when you're there for a while, they stay with you forever and they and you can get pension and all kinds of really, really great benefits over time. It's an excellent question. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something liberating about answering a question by saying, I have no idea. Put, put, putting I wish I knew every answer. That's a, you know, it's interesting. So, I mean, for example, Dr. Dahlia, the Wycombe investor, you know, is a former military doc. And so he actually, you know, his website may have something about that. Um, but yeah, I, I personally don't know. Uh, every, every doctor I've worked with in the, from the military when I was in med school, um, you know, a lot of them were either a career and they, they never left or they were contractors who were never really part of it. So it, it, I know very, very few people who have kind of been actually back and forth on it. All right. Um, so, Dr. White, we, I think uh, we'll probably switch into some more questions from the chat if, the, if anybody has some. We got a couple other ones that are kind of just mismatched, uh, mixed-matched questions. Um, but I'm curious, what are some of the biggest financial mistakes you've seen new residents make? So the most obvious one is the is the buying the big big car for no reason. Like I I've, I know somebody who literally put down their money for the new Hummer, like the new electric Hummer. It's like most residents probably should not be doing that, right? Like you should be able to service your your finances um, and, and probably you know quote unquote live like a resident, right? So there's nothing wrong with trying to enjoy your life, but there are certain levels of spending that are ostentatious that are worthwhile. People always describe it as like the heat on a treadmill, right? So it's like you can get used to anything, and so. Once you've gotten used to luxury, it's hard to go back to, you know, eating baked beans. And so you don't necessarily want to inflate your lifestyle so much. And I think the issue is a lot of the young doctors have is that their friends who did other fields have been in the career for a long time, right? I have friends who were earning six figures as 23-year-old college graduates, right? And so sometimes you're maybe in your 30s and you still haven't actually had a real paycheck. You still have a negative net worth hard to see the Instagram vacations and the filters and the cars and be like, well, I want that. And I, and I can afford that kind of, if I borrow for it, but at some point it becomes difficult to manage everything, especially if you do a student loan. So it's difficult to do that. Kind of similar to that is, you know, buying a house that you, that you, you can't really afford and become house poor. Right. So, you know, a lot of people look at their house payments and say, oh, because rent's throwing away money, which is, Yes and no. But so they'll, they'll buy a house that they can afford, quote unquote, but it's like a, it's tight, right? And so all it takes is a big expense or repair, something unexpected. You know, their spouse needs to stop working because they had complications for pregnancy or, or anything. And suddenly they're kind of hosed. And, you know, yeah, if you have the bacon mom and dad to borrow from an, an emergency, maybe it's okay. But 
that's, that's an issue is when you end up kind of being like, okay, I earn 60 grand a year. I can make this work, but you don't realize, okay, I earn 50 grand a year, but you have to deduct the health insurance and my taxes and, you know, my cable TV. And then suddenly you're like, oh man, it's tight. My budget is tight. <laughs> and so it, it's a challenge there. So I think one thing that residents should probably do, if you don't want a budget budget, I think it's totally fair. Then you have to reverse budget. You're going to figure out how much you actually take home every month and figure out what your non-negotiables are, right? So the big things, the things that are fixed every month, like your rent and your insurance, you know, your rentals insurance, your home insurance, those things that you can't avoid. And then you see how much you actually left over to play with for eating out and drinking and vacations. Because what you don't want to do is spend money you don't have and be playing cash up and going to credit card debt and stuff like that. It's always just a recipe for, for misery. Um, so I think it's really important to figure out how much money you have to play with and then spend it by all means. Like, I think there's nothing wrong with spending your money. I think it's fine. I think you should, you should know how much you should spend. You shouldn't just buy stuff because you want it and be like, hmm, I actually could not afford that. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about that on our last episode. Um, how spending money can happen very easily accidentally. If you're not paying to it, it can just fly right out the door. Um, but I want to highlight another another thing that you said that I, I I saw on your blog quite a bit. You were talking about like the, the margin of error that you should leave when you're doing a budget. And I can't remember the word that you said, but basically the concept was whenever you're planning the budget, don't plan it down to the dollar. You know, like give yourself a lot of room for error. Always overestimate how much things are going to cost. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought that was really good. I like that a lot. I think it's very helpful. I think one thing you can always do, which I think is interesting, which I get kind of pressed about is you can go into your credit card statements and they usually send you like an end of year review and you can see by category what you're spending on it. And people will be very surprised at what they spend money on. Cause people, if you ask people what their values are, like, you know, what do you, what makes you happy? You know, what do you enjoy doing? And they say, Oh, I enjoy, you know, family or this and that. And you look at how they spend their time, how they spend their money. Then there's like a huge mismatch. You're like, well, this much spending you're doing is not high yield for you. You actually don't enjoy that. And some things you're spending your time on are not things that make you happy. So it's like maybe a little bit less, you know, uh, alcohol, a little bit less uh, scrolling on Facebook based on what actually makes you happy. But if you look at how people spend their time, right, they're like scrolling like crazy and drinking too much, right? So I think it's really important to think about when you sit down at the end of the day and the month with your spouse, loved one, or by yourself and be like, what are my goals in life? What makes me happy? Where's my giving best bang for my buck? And make sure to find what you like and then spend lavishly on that. By all means, go for it. But make sure it's something you actually enjoy doing and not just something you're doing because other people are doing it or because you've done it before or because, you know, whatever. So I think it's really helpful. And definitely having room for error is helpful because expenses, there's always more things to spend money on than you, than you would ever imagine. It's just to cost money. So I'm curious, what are the luxuries that you enjoyed spending money on during residency? You know, the things that like you had some money left over and you're like, you know what, we're going to enjoy life a little bit because residency is really hard. So we're going to have some fun. What, what were some of those things that you found? So one thing is that I, we definitely did go on vacations and whatnot, my wife and I, uh, we always tried to make it, you know, as efficient as possible, but you know, you have so little time off that if you have it, basically felt like that was something that was important to us to prioritize. I would say the, the, the biggest thing we spent money actually that's kind of funny is like kid stuff. So we had our, our first son when I was, I think a third year resident and like, we did not, we like, we bought stuff. Like we bought like a new crib. We bought toys for him. We bought cute clothing for him. Like my wife and I enjoyed spending time with him and doing stuff with him. We were like, you know, is it a waste of money to, to buy kid clothing? It's cute. Of course it is. Right. The kid grows, outgrows it like in two months and he gets it full of, marinara sauce instantaneously right it's disgusting but like 
we just loved it. It was fun. It's so, like, that was something we spent money on. That was totally frivolous, but it, it brought us joy. And it was completely, you know, obviously from a, a finance perspective, like the wrong choice, right? Nothing. He doesn't care what he wears, right? Like he has no idea, you know, the toys that he has or the, the clothing he's wearing, but we always enjoyed it. Yeah. Finance is funny because really spending any money is the wrong choice. Right. But, but it's really, a, it's a value decision. And so, exactly. so that's, that's fun to hear. I, I, I like hearing that. So speaking of families, um, what other considerations do you have for families like during residency, you know, people with a wife and kids, um, is there any, do you have in this situation like that? I think that it matters a lot on how childcare and spouse work situation. I think it's very different if you're a non-working spouse. If you have a non-working spouse who's taking care of the kids, life insurance is like absolutely critical because again, you are, you know, you are the breadwinner for that family. And if you can't work or you're no longer there to work, they're going to be hosed. Um, so I think insurance is really important when people are relying on you exclusively. You know, if you have a working spouse who has a good salary and they can make it work without you, I think your, your ability to take out less insurance or have less insurance is a little bit better. But yeah, I mean, if you're, if your spouse is not working and you have kids, I would really, really consider getting a strong disability policy, uh, a lot of life insurance. It's not that expensive life insurance, at least thankfully, unlike disability insurance, but because again, I think peace of mind is really important. I think your spouse should know that they're going to be taken care of no matter what. I think it's really, really helpful for my family. A lot of families fight about money. And so being on the same page, I think it's really important. So finding out your middle ground, discussing the things that bother you guys about each other spending, all that stuff is really important. I think people are, are way happier and way better off if they are on this. It comes to kind of the big life goals. And for whatever reason, money, unfortunately, is one of those things. So if you want to be part-time or retire early or any of these things, like these are discussions to have, you know, early on to set yourself up for that plan. And especially if, you're, you know, if your spouse is not working to make sure that they're going to be comfortable because nothing worse than I think these stories I hear sometimes of people who, you know, there's a car accident or whatever. And then, you know, they're basically, you know, out of luck because the, the spouse has, you know, allowed them, you know, has put their own career on hold for the, the physician who's, you know, in med school run. It's a very common story. Right. And so it's really important to take care of each other. That um, Do you have any other advice or anything else, even if it's not related to finance, that you would like to tell people as we kind of wrap up? In terms of the spouse stuff or just anything in life? <laughs> just anything in life, I guess. Um, just kind of any, any closing thoughts, yeah. Anything in life, I love it. I will say one thing, and that's, um, you know, y'all are, people are, you know, thinking about post-match and, and residency. And I think one thing that's always struck me about, about medical school is, this idea of, of passion and fit that I think is kind of toxic. And it's that people get this idea that they should first off, like know what they want to do with life. They should know that like, you know, dermatology or something sparks the most joy in their hearts and that that is what they're destined to do. If you don't have that passion, something's wrong with you. And it's total nonsense. I think, I think passion, it's been shown that passion that you can grow via a good mental, good mentality, you know, deliberate practice, uh, being proud of what you do and being and taking care and doing it. So I think that's not true. And so I think what also happens because of that is that people get the idea, okay, I'm going to choose specialty X and I want to match it. And then if they, if they, and they want to go to program Y, and if they don't get program Y, they'll get specialty X. They feel like they are a failure and they feel disappointed in themselves as people. And they're never going to be happy because their colleagues who got what they wanted, you know, are, are better in some way. And I think it's so toxic because I think, you know, being happy and, and fulfilled in work is so much more about your attitude about your work than about what you're actually doing. I think there are people out there, I'm sure, who are, 
you know, driven to do exactly one thing and hopefully they get what they want because otherwise we'd be very unhappy. But I think most of us are capable of being happy or unhappy doing a wide variety of things. And it's really about how we approach those things. And so I think it's really important to when you get to residency, whether it's what you wanted or what you didn't want to take pride in what you do, to, to be proud of your hard work, to want to get better and then take joy in getting better. And if you do that, I think you will be passionate and be happy in what you do. I think it's so much more important to take a craftsman mentality to that, to that work. And I think that's how we kind of fix burnout. So we stay happy is by taking kind of control over our perspective on our jobs. That's all we can really can control. So as a follow-up to that, how do you, and this really doesn't have to do with finance, but how do you communicate that attitude of passion and, um, integrity and hard work in everything that you do, but then still communicate to a residency in your personal statement that you really do want to do dermatology or radiology, you know, like, I don't know. I, you always hear these stories about these personal statements that are all the same. I really want, I'm really passionate about X, Y, and Z. Um, and to me, sometimes I feel felt inauthentic, you know, applying to medical school or reaching out for opportunities because I'm trying to fit a mold that they want. Um, so I guess, but how do you communicate what you were talking about and how do you stay authentic to yourself, but still show that you truly are interested in what they have to offer? Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, right, it's a game. So all this stuff is a game. There's a lot of gamesmanship into getting med school. There are clerkships and you're performing, you know, it's basically acting school, right? Half of it is performing for other people, especially true for Sept2CS before it's canceled, but it's for Toronto stuff, right? And then it's true for interviews and everything. So I think there is, I mean, so I'll say, and personal statements are a great example because they are generally terrible, right? They're almost all bragging. They're almost all the same. And that's okay. I think to a large extent, truthfully, most of us are not going to have an interesting perspective on dermatology. That's fine. It's totally fine. I expect to be bored when I read them. It's totally okay. What I would say is that, you know, it's hard, I think, to, to, to not play the game. I think playing the game is fine. I think at the end of the day, you can play the game and try to be, you know, as earnest as possible in the process. And obviously, you know, don't lie and whatnot. But I think the, the key is when you actually do the real work to be true to yourself. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, unfortunately I'm going to say, I think it's okay to play the game a little bit and to put a big smile on during interview day, even if you're bored. Right. Cause people ask, you know, do you have any questions for me? Right. During interviews. And you're like, Oh, I just want to go home. Right. Like, I know I don't have any questions for you. I'm done. I'm so done. Right. And you're like, well, actually, you know, you know, and you do the thing. Right. So that's, that's part of the process. Right. Like it is part of it. And you know, why do you want to do something is kind of nonsense. Right. Cause I want to, I thought it'd be fun. Right. Like I did a bunch of things. I had to pick one. So I'm picking this one. Right. Why do I pick, why do I pick radiology? Totally arbitrary. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Yeah. I was going to do surgery. I, you know, I decided it was not for me for a variety of reasons, maybe some cultural stuff where I went to school. And then I did an IR, you know, an IR uh, trauma case. I'm like, that's pretty cool. I'll do that. And I got to residency and guess what? I was like, IR is okay. I prefer to do brain stuff. So I just did neuroradiology and stuff. It's like, it's fine, right? Like, I didn't have, so my personal statement may have not been like, you know, it was like, radiology is cool. I think I'd be good for it. You know, I have skills that are relevant to it and, you know, all that same stuff we all do during our personal statements. And I think it's fine to, you know, find the things in your life that apply to that field and, and highlight them. Like, you know, maybe I'm good with my hands or, you know, all that kind of whatever. 
but I think ultimately that is, you know, a, a transient process, right? So applying to anything is a transient process. What matters more is when that process is done and you're on ground zero and you're getting ready to really do the real work of being a doctor and taking care of people to invest yourself in it in a way that is sustainable for you, but makes you happy. And I think what happens a lot of times is that we get in a situation where, especially with medical school residency, where the work is hard and long and your colleagues are making more work for you, right? With consults, all these things, it becomes like combative and it becomes kind of toxic. And so, you know, and it's not that hard work sometimes is not fair, right? Where you're being mistreated. And I don't mean to say that people should just like deal with abuse because they really shouldn't, right? I think I see older doctors treat young doctors poorly all the time and it drives me crazy. And I always speak up. So I think it's total nonsense that because people had a, a toxic workplace 20 years ago and they are good doctors, that therefore that toxic workplace, what made them good doctors? I don't believe that for a second. I think mean, it's complete BS. And so I think it's important to speak up but I think it's also important for us to realize that our value is not defined by exactly what you do at work. You have value in and of yourself. And I think a lot of people, what happens is you say, okay, my identity becomes, oh, I'm, a, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a dermatologist. I'm a radiologist, whatever. And what happens when it doesn't work out? You know, either because of match day or because you get injured or because you get tired of doing it. You don't like doing it anymore. So what do you do if your identity is mixed up in that field instead of saying, oh, I'm a good person who happens to do this, or I, I like working with people, it becomes like, no, I'm a, I'm a surgeon and you can't operate. Well, then what are you? How do you deal with that existentially? And so I think a lot of burnout injuries are basically people who are, have put their identity in something and that something no longer feels right for them and they feel lost because who are they? What are they supposed to be doing? And it's, that, that navigation is extremely difficult. And you can be a lot better off being like, trying to grow your passions as you go with things and finding things that are kind of common to humanity as opposed to being like, Oh yeah, it's this procedure I really like doing. <laughs> I like doing appies. <laughs> you know, it's like perhaps a little bit too narrow of a focus to put your hat on. That's a really important concept um, that people are tying their uh, identity into things that are at, not at the right level that they need to be at. They need to be at something that's more generalizable. Um, because if you're, you're just setting yourself up for failure, if you tie your identity to something that's, you know, at that high of a level. I think people often find that with all these things that there's a, there are good and bad things about everything, right? So you may find that you're going to be in a field like, you know, radiology, where I, I see fewer patients, right? And I miss that sometimes. I, I like patients, right? But then you also be in other fields where there are things that bother you about, let's say, you know, sharding or something like that, right? So it's not like anything you would do in life is ever universally good or bad, right? It's really more about how you interface with it. So I think it is really important to keep an open mind with everything. And it includes when you fight with your spouse, your kids misbehave, when the hospital is not letting you back. Like these are, these are broad life lessons that I think are, are easy to talk about and hard to put in practice. That's why we all call it practice, right? It's medical practice and it's also life practice. You just got to keep working on it. And, you know, every once in a while you're like, you know, I've been kind of a dick for the past month. I should probably be nicer. You know, <laughs> I don't want to happen, but I'm not being the person I want to be anymore. I should probably take a reset and try harder. And that happens sometimes. Sometimes I, I talk to somebody and I'm like, you know what? That could have gone better. And I'll be like, I need to do better next time. Sometimes I even go apologize and like, hey, I was probably kind of curt right then. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'll do better next time. And people are like shockingly happy, but like, thank you for saying that. Like, you know, people want to interface in a nice way. Right. So when things get, when you're tired and things get tough, it's, it's, it's okay to be human and have feelings, but also okay to be like, okay, I've taken a nap now. Let's do better next time. I want to make a comment about what you were saying earlier. You were talking about, um, you know, our identities, we get caught up in our identities as physicians. For me, I'm just a medical student, but, but I think it's important to, to, 
like you were saying, make our identity not so much about what we are as physicians or this procedure that we do, because when we do that, and I'm, I'm kind of generalizing people right now, so it's not everybody, but sometimes I see physicians or medical students who do that and their identity is so tied up in this that, that we look down on our fellow human beings or our, our friends, you know, who chose to be lawyers or business people or plumbers or electricians because they didn't choose as high a calling as we did as physicians, right? Which is, to me, is totally bogus because every one of these people plays an important role in our society. Um, but anyway, that was just kind of a tangent. Um, I, I did want to say there's, there's a couple more uh, messages in the chat. Brooklyn commented and said, uh, and just asked, what's your advice on how to handle the financial changes or things to consider when transitioning from being a resident to an attending? So do, do you have any thoughts on that, how to transition from the finances of a resident to an attending? Yeah, and so the quickest answer is to pretend like it didn't happen for as long as possible, right? Because the, the, the delta between what you spend and what you earn is what makes you wealth, is what helps you pay off your debts and, and acquire wealth and give you flexibility. I'm not one of those fire guys who thinks everyone should retire early, but I do think you know being debt-free and, and not having to owe money to people is very helpful and very liberating because it allows you to work the way you want to work, right? So if you want to be part-time, you want to work at a less well-paying job that's more pleasant, well, you can do that when you don't need a bigger paycheck to to pay for the stuff in your life. Um, so that's the kind of short answer. The longer answer is make sure you have disability insurance stuff and life insurance all set up. Cause that's really, again, really important. I think make sure that you figure out your living situation. It's not a bad idea. If you're moving somewhere new to not buy a house immediately, go rent for a little while first, get the area that you're figuring out, make sure you know where you actually want to buy that house, see how your commute is, make sure you like the job before you buy a house because there's a lot of transactional costs to buying a home. So it takes years to break even on the closing costs of a house and a sale. So yeah, so you could buy a house and the market goes up and you get lucky even if you resell it really quickly, but in most cases you're going to lose money. So it, it makes a lot more sense to not, you know, go out and buy a house immediately. Like I got a friend of mine who built a brand new house in his new job. Well, his job got bought up by private equity and it's not a great job anymore. And he can't leave because he's bought a gigantic house. He built a gigantic house, right? So perhaps not the best move. Uh, so it's, I think it's really important to make sure that you know what you're doing with that. And again, consider not, you know, growing into that income as, as, as much as you can uh, so that you're going to have enough money left over, let's say, max out your 401k and, and save for kids college and pay off your student loans. And so I think you got to figure out when you figure out that new job, how much money you're going to earn, what that's going to look like take home wise for what you can afford both for living transportation student loans, retirement. And again, you should basically pay yourself first. So you have to make sure that you're able to pay for those student loans and that retirement. And after that, then you can go play and, and buy fun stuff, right? So if you can do the student loans, the retirement, your house and your car. Then after that, once you've done all those things, go buy your fun toys. That seems like a pretty good place to end it. Um, can you, uh, like, where can people find more about you? You've got a Twitter, right? And a website, Yes, the website is benwhite.com. It's got lots and lots of stuff. Been running for like, you know, 12 years now. Um, and then Twitter is benwhitemd. So feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to answer questions, be resourced. If you ask a good question, it'll turn into a blog post maybe one day. So that's always helpful for other people. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. White. My pleasure.